This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work now premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. My guest today has been quoted as saying that guns now have more rights than women in this country, and she is working every day to change that. Lauren Leader is the co-founder and CEO of All In Together, a nonpartisan organization that educates and empowers voting age women to participate fully in America's civic and political life. Lauren, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to share a little bit more about you with our audience. There is so much there. Um, so in addition to Lauren's leadership of All In Together, she works with a wide range of global corporations to advance civic participation, women's leadership, and social impact. She's the former president of the Center for Talent Innovation and author of Crossing the Thinnest Line, which sparked an important conversation about the importance of diversity to the future of America. In her work as a television commentator, she's appeared on most major news outlets, including CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, addressing issues of gender equity and inclusion. She was a 2018 Presidential Leadership Scholar and serves on the town board of the town village of Harrison, New York. She's a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and if that's not all impressive enough, an alumna of Barnard College. So Lauren. Single mom of three. That's a big one. That might be the header. Yeah. (laughs) And It it is many days of the week. I'm sure, which just reinforces my first question to you. It seems like you are doing a million things, all really important. What is the primary motivator for you right now? And how are you prioritizing everything? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't feel like I'm doing a million things. I do feel like I'm doing, I am doing a lot of things, but they're all focused on the same outcome, which is trying to advance women's equality in every place and space that I possibly can. And that's my the driving force in everything I do. And um, I can't leave problems alone when I see them. And so I try to do everything I possibly can, but but I actually am pretty focused um, on that work. Because I am a single mom of three, there is a part of my life, which is not all, it's not always all, um, you know, do-getting. I have to make a living and support <laughs> my family, but I try to do that. Um, in the same space. So, you know, in addition to my political work, I I continue to advise corporations on a lot of these issues. And so, you know, I'm lucky that I can devote the time that I do to the work that I care about. And also that I've been able to figure out how to like support my family in the process. So in that kind of ripple effect of we take the individual stuff we really care about. Hopefully we find ways to um, address the stuff that matters to us in our work, but either way, it's a part of our lives. And you're going from the personal to the practical to, and the kind of community and the political you're, you're, it seems like your circles go farther and farther out, but in the way that you were just talking about, it's like, yeah, there's the corporate work. And there's the political work, but I would argue, aren't they connected? Oh, they're completely connected. And I didn't mean to imply that they're not, they really are. And in fact, 
My nonprofit all in together is supported by about 19 major corporations, many of whom I are also work on work with on their own gender equity um, efforts in house and that the political, you know, is huge and critically important in terms of their advancement of gender equity in the world. And I think, look, I think one of the things that is really positive is the number of companies that have made a commitment to supporting their employees' civic participation, um, have given time off to vote, have encouraged people to get registered to vote and turn out to vote, and also who are like becoming advocates on women's issues in ways that were frankly unimaginable a decade ago. You know, to think that corporations like Citi um, would make a public statement about abortion rights through committing to paying for women who need to cross state lines and the number of companies that have done similar things um, to support gender equality, not just in the workplace, but in the world, like that's important. And it, it, I like to think I've had something to do with that. Um, we've really tried to push companies to be consistent. That if you say, as you know, so many companies have over all of these years, that you're committed to gender equality, that you're committed to women's leadership and representation, that you're committed to diversity and inclusion, your public policy has to line up with that. And increasingly, employees are asking for that too. And they're asking hard questions. And I think particularly, you know, after the fall of Dobbs, you know, I've heard from, you know, dozens of companies that, you know, obviously some of them made more public stands than others, but ultimately it was their employees demanding that they take a stand that was really different. Um, I think that happened a bit around George Floyd as well, obviously, like the pressure on corporations to make good on their many years of diversity commitments and their many years of talking about racial equity, you know, it got real um, after George Floyd. And I think this is a similar moment to that, that Dobbs is one of these moments that's like pushing companies, pushing everybody to really take a stand and think through where they are and what they represent and what they're going to do. So one of the things that we saw with George Floyd and corporate behavior was there was the performance of putting out a statement, and then there was the actuality of making changes and committing to initiatives within the organization, and also externally in their communities, yeah. in their lobbying efforts to prompt meaningful change. What are you seeing in corporations that go beyond the public statement? Are you seeing that they're really working to make sure that more women can stay employed as we lose these protections? Yeah, I do. And look, I think for the most part, you know, corporate America has been generally, I think, a net positive on, in, I mean, in some ways has been more committed to and pushed diversity and inclusion, you know, more than any other sector. I mean, obviously during the Trump years, that was for sure true. I think the Biden administration has taken very progressive stands on diversity issues and issued executive orders around diversity and inclusion that apply to all the agencies. But, you know, for a long time, the corporate world has actually been a leader on this, um, not exclusively, but, you know, some pretty significant commitments. And I've seen like real progress. The numbers of private equity firms that are now insisting that the boards that they are invested in have women and not only just insisting, actually helping find those women and placing them on boards. Um, the numbers of you know, companies like Goldman Sachs that made a commitment that they wouldn't take companies public if they didn't have women on their boards. The kind of diligence that many big companies now do around their promotion process and their hiring process. And you know, I think there's a lot of real work happening. There's a lot of like insufficient execution and I think so let's be real, like the numbers have not 
massively changed at the top. You know, we have a few more women CEOs than we had 10 years ago, but you know, it's not a, it's not a dramatic difference. And I, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of it, you know, for sure is the lack of seriousness. Some of it is just the way that most companies approach diversity and inclusion, which I think has not been especially effective. They, you know, delegate it to a chief diversity officer who doesn't have a lot of power, a lot of budget or a lot of influence. So there's like a lot of things that are broken about this stuff. Yeah. But I, I think on, on balance, it's a pretty serious effort. The political side of it is so much more complicated though. And I think like, I, I have some compassion for these companies about this. You know, some of my peers, especially those like on left-leaning media, like MSNBC and elsewhere, you know, I'm a regular on Morning Joe, they're not as compassionate about it, but I think there's a really, they need to be pushed, but there's also a really difficult reality, which is what we saw after the voting rights issues in Georgia, right? So, you know, Georgia implements this like very restrictive voting law that repeals a lot of the protections. It's really viewed broadly on the left as voter suppression, disproportionately impacts people of color, disproportionately impacts women. So a whole bunch of companies, you know, came out against the Georgia state legislature, said they were going to leave the state. Well, the problem is, is that then those bills get similar bills get passed in dozens of other states. And so where do you go? And there's backlash against it. So I think that's the issue with Dobbs. Like you've got companies based in Texas that are super progressive, you know, companies like Bumble and, you know, Dell and like any number of other, you know, corporations that are actually really progressive that believe in women's rights. But if you ask them, like, would you pick up and leave Texas over over the abortion ban? No, they're not going to do that. Where are they going? There's 26 other states that have abortion bans. Right. right? So I think there's employees want and, and employees are, you know, look, the majority of Americans support abortion rights. So clearly there's a, there's dissent and di- good people can disagree on on, you know, on abortion. The fact is, is that, you know, if you are committed to gender equality, it's pretty hard not to also be committed to ensuring your employees have access to health care. So, but it's complicated. And, and I really, I think none of these companies are in an easy position. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Lauren Leader, who's the CEO of All In Together. So Lauren, as you're talking about this, it's raising at its heart ethical and moral issues. It's also raising economic issues. So if the heart of the company is pointed in the right direction, there's got to also have been an economic calculus to the effort towards diversity and inclusion. They're in states where it's economically viable for them to stay in business and keep people employed. They can't economically afford to move. It's like, those are parts of the equation. Right. We have voters. As Warren Buffett says, you know, you're at a disadvantage when you're, when you've got one hand tied behind your back, right? Like that not having 50% of the workforce is a strategic disadvantage advantage, especially in a moment where we have a massive labor shortage in this country. So like, this is the conundrum is that I think most companies are very clear and understand the business case of diversity. Like we've been talking about this for 20 years. This is not new news. Everybody understands that companies that have more women in leadership do better. They outperform that companies with diversity and leadership, you know, across every conceivable measure. And there's dozens and dozens and dozens of studies that confirm this outperform companies that are less diverse. But then to your point, you know, what, how far do you go in those commitments? And I think that's what many companies are struggling with today, which is that they have come very far in terms of advocating for women's equality. They'll go to Washington and they'll talk about equal pay and they will, you know, support, you know, commitments to gender diversity on boards and, 
They will put a ton of money into nonprofits that are doing that work. They'll do all the right things. But when it comes to like these decisions that like leaving a state or fundamentally changing your business or refusing to do business with other companies, like, I mean, we're going to see this if gay marriage is repealed. We're going to see another like massive disruption around this because because corporate America has been so pro LGBTQ, but you know, is Goldman not going to take the banking work from uh, Chick-fil-A? Probably not. So, you know, and then you look at like what has, what companies have been doing around divesting, for instance, from fossil fuels. It's another good example of where this is just a total nightmare for these companies. You divest from fossil fuels. Well, guess what? You can't do business in Texas right now. So these are really complicated questions. And And so with these economic with these economic imperatives, do you think that the that corporations will start lobbying for legislation to protect reproductive rights in order to protect their workforce? Or is that a bridge too far for them? I don't know. I think we'll see. Um, and, you know, look, they were willing to take part of the force behind the legalization of gay marriage with corporate America. I mean, corporate America was extraordinarily progressive in pushing um, the rights of gays and lesbians at every at every turn, whether they're willing to go that far on abortion rights, I don't know. I, I, my temp, my gut is the answer is probably not. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite dubious and kind of disappointed at that. I think there's a certain reality in that. I want to look at from the other perspective, though. Our voters. Yeah. This is also for the voter. Um, this brings up issues of our personal ethics. It also brings up issues of our personal economics. We've seen moderate voters um, lean one way or the other based on what they feel the impact's going to be to their personal pocketbooks. Do you think that voters have the information they need and are able to factor in the economic impact of the limits on reproductive rights when they go to the polls? So look, I think this is all, so we do a lot of polling on this and We've been looking very closely at it. I think there is a lot of unknowns. So let, let me back up and say this. We've been looking at how motivating abortion is as a voting issue for the last year. And before the Dobbs decision, even understand, even as Americans understood that there was a threat of the end of reproductive, of, of, of the constitutional right to reproductive health care, that there it wasn't necessarily a top issue. And in fact, the economic issues were really trumping everything else as prices have gone up and inflation and the cost of food and gas and these pocketbook issues that are so real for so many Americans, housing, et cetera, that we're all struggling with. Those were number one issues. After the fall of Roe, the reality of that, I think was really shocking, particularly for younger women. And younger women have been enormously important to the overall kind of electoral politics. Like Joe Biden won really because well, obviously, look, every election since 1980 has been turned by women. Women are more likely to be registered to vote, and they're more likely to turn out at the polls than men. And so they have an outsized influence. They were responsible for electing Barack Obama, just as they were responsible for vote, for electing Donald Trump, right? The 52% of white women that voted for Trump was enough to push him over the line. But in the Biden president, in the Biden election, you saw this huge coalition of younger women, suburban women, moderate women, this real sort of cross-section, and of course, Black women who were so fundamental. They've been sort of off, younger women have been a bit out to lunch the last like six months, just weren't really that interested in what was going on. A lot of frustration that the sense that like Democrats have not delivered what they wanted them to do, that Biden hasn't gone far enough on a bunch of things. 
but that Dobbs, but Dobbs changes that. And it pulls we, the floor out from under everybody. It pulls the floor out from under everyone. And I think, look, in the context of, in our lifetimes, in 50 years of American history, we have only ever seen individual and personal rights expand. We've mm-hmm. had a few setbacks, but for the most part, everything from loving to, frankly, to the gun to the, the, the gun rights bill, that the gun rights ruling that was just a few days before Dobbs, right, which liberalized even more individual freedom to own a firearm, right? All of that is like this straight line towards more freedom. Right. And then all of a sudden you have this decision that is runs so contrary to what truly a majority of Americans believe. And by the way, you know, even there are, you know, folks who are, as we said, it's a complicated moral issue. There are for sure people who are pro-life, but who still support a constitutional protection for those who need access to abortion. This went too far. And for the, sh- the shock for younger Americans of losing something, you know, and I've said for years, like, don't take things away from voters. It's a very bad call. Like, you look at what happened with Obamacare. You know, Republicans tried to t- repeal Obamacare. Americans may not have loved Obamacare. They didn't want you to take it away. Don't take it away. And I think that's going to be a role. I think that is a force that is a force multiplier. The other thing is, I think we are only beginning to understand the implications. And for people who want access to IVF, um, we had a vote on contraception, contraceptive access. You know, there, these, there are some really fundamental, basic um, dimensions of daily life that most Americans take for granted that if they become truly threatened, I think we are in absolutely uncharted political territory. Also, I don't, I don't want to skip over an important um, reality of the past that I think a whole we've missed a whole generation. They don't realize, never mind IVF and miscarriage care and the role of abortives in healthcare. We have a whole generation that doesn't remember what it was like when women could not have legal abortions and the women who were dying from it and the way it changed women's lives and women's economic realities. How, are, how do we help this generation understand the potential impact of it from that basic safety, that basic control over their lives into all of these highly complex questions? Well, I think that we're going to start seeing as these stories come out, you know, I think you're going to see a growing level of outrage. I mean, listen, Younger women are pissed. So like, let's not underestimate. I mean, we saw a 26 point increase in the commitment to vote in the midterm elections among women under age 30 after Dobbs, the week after Dobbs, 26 point increase. So like, that's huge. So they're fired up. This is a voting issue. They're gonna, if they, if they, that's the holds, they will turn out. The, the thing is, I think we're barely scratching the surface of the implications here. And, and to your point, you know, as people start to realize someone can't get a topic pregnancy care, you know, can't access other kinds of basic health care, this even the story of this poor 10 year old girl in Indiana, like the reality of this stuff begins to set in. And you're right, most of us have never had to even think about this in our lifetimes. I mean, I'm born in 75. I've never, I mean, my my mother was an abortion rights activist all the way through the 60s and 70s. So I grew up with like the stories my whole life. But still, it doesn't feel real to you until it's real to you. Um, And I think we're going to see 
we're going to see a massive realignment. I believe this is a moment of like massive realignment of American politics. Because it just so much is at stake. Because it's so extreme. And, you know, Americans, you know, Nancy Pelosi has said for years and, and those on the left drives them nuts. But she <laughs> said for, for, for years that America is basically a center left country, but like really a center left country, not right. a left left center. center. And most Americans are really somewhere in the middle. And I think the extremity of some of these, um, of some of what's happening, you know, is, is, is distressing. And, and I was just saying this to somebody else today that like American politics doesn't turn on the majority, right? It turns on these small voting blocks. And, you know, when they, when those voting blocks turn out, everything shifts. And, and, you know, right now that's independent women in the suburbs of, of most major cities. It is younger women. Um, those are the folks minority women, those are the folks right now that have an outsized potential to really change the political landscape in this country if they show up, if they show up. How do we get them to show up? Well, I think they're gonna show up. I mean, the thing is the 2020 election, you know, we talk all the time, I'm, I'm a bit of a, sometimes I say I'm, I'm a prisoner of hope, which is really a Desmond Tutu. I, I, it's a stolen from Desmond Tutu. I am a prisoner of hope. But I do think that there were a lot of signs. There are a lot of signs of hope, despite I'm not one of the people who screams all the time about our democracy failing, because I actually think there's a lot that's working. And one of the things that was working, you know, in the 2020 election, we had the highest voter turnout in the history of this country. People turned out to vote in extraordinary numbers. In Georgia, where we just had the primary even though there was this new restrictive voting law in place, they had record turnout there. And I think we're gonna potentially see that in this midterm that people are paying attention because ultimately, even with all of the claims of election fraud and the sort of level on which our confidence in the electoral system has been undermined, and there's new polls on that just this week, people are believing more of this stuff about you know, election integrity than they should, even in that context, you know, voting is our superpower. And I think Americans are really understanding that in a new way. The consequences of our votes, people are understanding in a new way. What about the 52% of white American women who voted for Donald Trump, who um, in doing so supported the policies that came with that? Um, there's, we know statistically those women have abortions too. Those women need reproductive health care, too. Um, how do you think their votes are going to go, given this new reality in the country? Right. And but that number really shifted in 2020. Right. So we it was a very different reality in 2020. But the fact is, look, right now, the biggest gender gaps in this country are there. There are massive political divides in between gender divides in the parties. The Republican Party is skewing much more male and the Democratic Party is skewing much more female for lots of obvious reasons, but it's also an educational gap. And so those, the 52% of white women that voted for Donald Trump was hugely driven by the turnout of non-college educated voters. And, and that was enough for him. In the Biden win, it, that dynamic changed. And, and we're gonna see what happens in 22. I believe that the turnout, that coalition of especially the more moderate voters, suburban voters and places like Virginia and Michigan and all these places, 
three months, you know, a month before Dobbs, I would have said we're Democrats are in big trouble. Republicans had a very big advantage. I think Dobbs completely rewrites the whole playbook and it, it changes the entire landscape because what was missing was this existential threat that Democrats always seem to need in order to show up. So <laughs> right. Don, Donald Trump was it's like, we don't show up unless we think we're going to die. Right. You know? So, so the upside of this terrible, <laughs> maybe a little dramatic decision, but. right. But it will drive people to the polls. Yeah. And I think that's been a problem with democratic politics for a long time. And it's part of why Donald Trump was such an animating figure was because Democrats saw him as this existential threat and it made them turn out. You know, <laughs> right. I, mean, I will tell you, the Dem Republicans are praying right now that he does not declare that he's going to run for president before the midterm elections. Right. Because that is very good for Democrats and it's very bad for Republicans. So we will see. Look, we have to see what's going to happen in these announcements. But also, I think a lot of the work sits on us, those of us who can get people out to the polls, who are organizing people and who are getting these messages out to the local communities. Do you yeah. feel like there is the infrastructure in place to help that happen? Um, yes and no. We, we need more. Um, look, I think that the I, I always worry about folks at the margins of American society, and I think in an environment where the cost of living has become so crushing, where, um, you know, just some basic access to health and well-being is so jeopardized, where we have, you know, lots of women and children in poverty in this country, like for them, turning out is not the most, is not life and death. And, you know, so we spend a lot of time trying to engage those folks, but, um, you know, we always need more. We always need more women participating and we need to support each other in doing it. So Lauren, all in together seems like just the organization we need at this time. You mm. started it though in 2014. So talk to me about how you started it, what its goals were then and how it's shaping now. Yeah, well, so we started, that's right, in 2014. And I had spent most of my career over the previous like 10 years working in corporations on advancing women's leadership. And so I spoke to a lot of women's networks, employee networks at a lot of companies, and you could feel that there was this sort of simmering frustration that women were realizing just how hard and high the glass ceiling was, that it wasn't really budging and that there was, and there was a lot of energy around trying to advance women in the workplace. But what you didn't see was any sense that there was anything political that could be done about it. I mean, just wasn't even the radar. Mm -hmm. And we knew that Hillary was likely going to run. And there was a lot, I was frustrated that in the Obama years, that there wasn't more of more progress on women's issues, like particularly issues like family leave, mm -hmm. which I had worked on for years. I couldn't believe that, you know, Obama sort of blew it. He had the presidency in both houses of Congress and still couldn't pass paid family leave. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So the, the, but the thing that was really the animating force was that I couldn't believe that all these women weren't making the connection between political power and change. Yep. And that to me just seemed like a real problem. And the other organizations out there, there were lots of organizations training women to run for office, but like the women that I were talking to, like weren't even doing the first thing political. They, they didn't think it even mattered. And so part of what we set out to do was to show women, not only that it mattered, but that 
that there is, it is a path to making change that it is worth your time. And then of course, like everything changed in 2016. And I think, you know, it was a, a very existential moment for lots of women. You know, you saw that reflected in the women's marches, but still, you know, what we saw everywhere we went was that like there was frustration, but nobody really knew what to do. It wasn't very clear how to make a difference. And so our goal was just to make politics accessible and positive and um, kind of a sisterhood. And give so, and, and was the goal to get people to vote or to get people to run or both? The answer is yes. Okay. All of the things. So I think part of what we want people to understand is that there's a lot of ways to be an active citizen and they don't all require that you quit your job and go run for office. I mean, you can spend 15 minutes a week and make a difference. And so what we try to get women to do is to really focus on what the issues are that matter most to them, which is usually really only like one or two issues, because if we all are stretched for time, you can't save the polar bears and also abortion rights in the same week. <laughs> so um, we're all very- Even busy. you, you get a lot done. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 I can't. Although it's hard in the morning when you open your Facebook feed and it's like, there's just so much, you know, you doom scroll in the morning and like, <sighs> all the things that need to be fixed in the world. But the thing is that can be very paralyzing. So we want women to like make some key choices about what matters most to them, about what's urgent, what they know something about. And by the way, like having, being an expert in an issue often just means you've lived it, right? And we used to say this a lot that like women think they have to have a PhD in something in order to work on it. And that's just not true. You know, we're all, you know, if you've had a sick kid, you become a very quick expert in the in the health insurance system, right? right. So if you are a survivor of domestic violence, like you know how the, so, uh, so we really try to encourage women to take those life experiences, to use that, to um, talk to elected officials, to get to know them, to show up at town board meetings, to get involved in school board, really any and everything matters. And of course, voting. And of course, uh, you know, we want more women to run for office. And I think we've seen that in the last few years, there has been an increase, but not enough. It's still only about 16% of all the candidates are female in this cycle. And that's a record number. What about local you politics? show women that this is worth their time. What about local politics? It's a point of yeah, entry yeah. for so many people. It's where um, most people who wind up staying in politics learn how yeah. to be engaged, but also it can be um, an end unto itself. So yeah, talk I'm to a, me listen, I'm a local about elected. engaging in local politics. Yeah, I'm a local elected. board it's member. Not a, it's not a thing that I ever, ever thought I was going to do, but you know, righteous indignation <laughs> made me run for office. And in my town, we had a horrific uh, scandal. There were no women on our town government on the town board, and one of the women uh, who worked for our, who was a volunteer firefighter was stalked and mercilessly sexually harassed and the town board swept it under the rug. And I ran because I was just pissed off. And I thought it was ridiculous that there were no women in our local in our local elected office. I thought that was not a good formula for out, better outcomes. And so um, I stepped to do, up to do it. It's, it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done, actually. Um, I mean, national politics are tough, local politics, you know, it's everyone, every time you go out for groceries, like you see someone in the grocery store who's like, I heard what you did about that stop sign, you know? So, but it's also really rewarding. And ironically, the, the long arm of politics kind of swung back around because the case that I mentioned, which was my reason to run the woman who was victimized, 
Um, the Department of Justice just dropped a massive lawsuit on my town, um, and the town is very likely going to finally settle um, because of the merits of the case, which, you know, I, I was not involved in. That was the Department of Justice, but I do feel sort of vindicated that ultimately that this woman will get her, you know, right, will, will be doing right by her eventually, which is important. So anyway, but yes, local politics is really important. And I think most Americans think of politics as CNN and Washington and far away. And the fact is like most of our local elected officials are just people in our town like us and they want to know you and they represent very small numbers of people. And, and right now, like state politics is everything. I mean, our state mm -hmm. legislatures, I mean, talk about outsized power, you know, our state legislatures in most states actually aren't representative. And the reason is because people don't pay attention. Right. You know? And it, it, it's not covered in the news that we consume. We don't reach the news where it's covered. Right. And we don't pay attention to it. I mean, in Texas, just as an example, I mean, we think of Texas as this like red, red state. You got to know there were like a third of the seats in the Texas state legislature that not a single Democrat even tried to run for. That's just shameful. Florida, and then we're complaining third, about the state of things. 30 seats in the Florida state legislature. Democrats didn't even run a candidate. Oh, my God. So the Republicans ran unopposed. They ran unopposed for like a third of the seats in two incredibly important states. And the reason why that happens is because people just don't pay attention to the power of these local governments. And like this is I mean, ultimately, you know, that is the basic split between Republicans and Democrats in this country, right? Republicans believe in local control and state control and Democrats want federal government. So th they, they've been very successful. There are a lot of issues that have gone back to the states. And in the meantime, they've also done a lot of work to focus their energies on state races and state government and, and Democrats really haven't. So Lauren, it's so clear that there are opportunities out there and there's a real need. And we want to help women get mobilized. But you referred to something earlier. There's a pattern that women often face of expecting that they have holding back until they have all the credentials, until yeah. they have 100% of the requirements. We know this. So talk to me a little bit, whether it's personal or observed. Yeah. What are the skills that you need to muster to run for office and serve? And how do you learn them? And how yeah. did you well, deal with that? All right, so here's the thing. So, and I we've researched this a lot. So most Americans don't have a very high level of civic knowledge, okay? So every year the Annenberg Center does this like American civics test. We're doing better than we used to, but like, you know, most Americans can't name who represents them in Congress. A very significant number can't tell you the three branches of government. like. Americans don't know how our government works. And all the data shows that men and women have about the same level of civics knowledge. Okay. Women think they know less. You know, not <laughs> knowing, and you'll appreciate this, not being informed does not seem to be a barrier to men. <laughs> Let's just say, I've they, noticed that. They are undeterred by their lack of experience and expertise. Um, Actually, one of my favorite cartoons of all time is this New Yorker cartoon, and it has a man and a woman, and they're sitting across from each other at dinner, and they're both having glasses of wine, and the man says to her, let me interrupt your expertise with my confidence. <laughs> well put, yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that is the world we all live in. But so anyway, how do we help so, women right. see? So, they so civic education is part of what we do, because we do know that when women kind of get a sense of like how things work, it makes them more confident to go out and do stuff. Right. And, but I think we gotta like, we gotta look around a little bit. Like this is, we own this, right? We own democracy. It's ours. 
And it belongs to each of us as much as it belongs to anyone else. And, you know, I think there is this, you know, we think you have to, it's the magic of our system as broken as it is, as many things as are wrong and imperfect about the American system. Fundamentally, we have the right to petition our government for our grievances. We have the right, we have the access to free and fair elections, whatever Donald Trump might say. Uh, We have a very multi, we have a multi-tiered government system that means that we have local electeds that are representing very small numbers of people that are accessible to us and who you can pick up the phone and call. Like there's a lot that works about our system. And I think just believing that, just embracing it is a lot. And so like for running for office, look, most people don't know what they're doing when they're running for office. I sure didn't, I had help. Um, There's lots of wonderful organizations out there that will train women if they're interested in running. Um, my, our friends at, at vote run lead, and there's the women's campaign school at the LBJ and the women's campaign school at Yale. And there's lots and lots of resources out there for you to learn, but I didn't do any of those things. I just decided I was going to do it. I had some political background, but, um, you know, most of the time you kind of learn on the job, like anything else that we do and just being committed and believing in yourself is just, is so much of it. And like, really for women, you know, you look around and like, a lot of the dudes are pretty mediocre, let's be honest. <laughs> and I know a lot of awesome women who I'd really love to see in public well, service. Sure, and you could be one of them too. So, <laughs> I mean, look, here's the thing. A lot of elected jobs, like my elected job, so I get paid a whopping $19,000 a year to do my <laughs> elected job. It is a part-time job. And um, it is in a lot of different, there are a lot of different part-time elected jobs out there. Um, school boards on up. And um, they don't all require you quitting your job. But, you know, it's important and we, we need women to do this. We need women to recognize that it belongs to us. It belongs to us. And that we're capable of doing this well. A hundred percent. As and we're certainly just as capable as the dudes. Yes. And to go back to what you said, to trust that our personal experiences inform us that's right. and that our stories matter. That's right. And I think that's really powerful. I mean, and when you see, you know, if you think about like, who are the women that you relate to most women leaders that you relate to most, they're the ones that can talk authentically about their own lives. So speaking about the power of story, there's another place where you're making a huge impact, Lauren, and it's as a storyteller that you're a commentator. um, You're a regular on morning Joe, and you're um, increasingly helping the world understand what's going on out there and what the questions and impact of it is. How did you wind up there? First of all, well, let's be honest, because I'm a huge pain in the ass. (laughs) How I got one up there. I mean, really, that's like really it. I mean, I wore them down. It took me years to get onto Morning Joe. So, like, let's not be so impressed. It took me like five years of like begging them. And by the way, I started my television career on Fox News at two o'clock in the morning during the 2016 cycle. I would get on whatever they would put me on, and um, it got increasingly nasty on Fox closer to the election, as you can imagine. But I mean, I really like I paid my dues. I did a thousand terrible hits that literally three people, I mean, not even my mom watched it. (laughs) So, but I used to say that like doing Fox news was like training for a marathon at high altitudes because it was so confrontational and so difficult. And they would routinely set me up as like the punching bag, right? By the way, I did Tucker Carlson. Like I did all those shows. You really did it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really went through it. And Tucker (laughs) would like just fun story, fun fact. 
Tucker like couldn't turn it off off the air. So if he seems like a jerk on air, it's because he is. And he would like chase me down the hall, like screaming at me, wanting to like continue to fight after we got off the air. And I was like, I'm going home. I can't do this anymore. So, so I worked really hard at it. And I, I, but I like fought my way up and, and really, and like, and I did it not because I was like, I mean, I think, look, I, I don't care. I never cared about being famous. I, I was doing it because I thought there was important things that needed to be said. And, and I was obsessed with that because it pissed me off that day after day after day, I would turn on the news and I didn't exist. Right. And that, and, you know, things changed after 2016, but, but keep in mind, like, you know, Roger Ailes was running Fox news and Matt Lowers at the today show. And, you know, Charlie Rose is at Bloomberg and Mark Halperin is on morning Joe. So like, there's all these dudes that are turned out to be serial sexual harassers controlling the news cycle. And it was obvious that they were controlling the news cycle. Some of the most overt sexism I ever experienced in my life was on a television set. So that was my obsession and I'm still obsessed with it and I'm not done. So I'm lucky that yeah. Morning Joe is very good to me now. Mika has been an amazing mentor and friend. She's been incredibly supportive of me. Um, I'm very grateful for that. She is like the real deal when it comes to supporting women. And she likes to talk about, you know, she has enabled, she's opened a lot of doors for me as did one of the women producers at the show who just left the show actually. And um, like what she did for me was unbelievable. You know, I spent hours on the phone with her and she, before she ever let me on the show. And then like the one time I was, you know, I just, I wanted to not screw it up, but she really gave me a shot, but look, I'm there to do a job. That's not about me. You know, I'm but there Lauren, to talk it's about a, what matters. It's, it's a testimony to your stick to but also an important lesson for all of us that we have to start in the trenches and that. Yeah. Um, it's worth the work and it's worth the belief in ourselves and the patience to slog through it when yeah. we have these bigger ambitions that matter to us. Yeah. How did you not lose your focus, your commitment to it? Was it just yeah, that moments, as they behave badly, you were propelled by rage? Yeah, no, I mean, rage helps. <laughs> um, look, I, I've had a lot of setbacks. I mean, I was supposed to get my own TV show last year and I really thought it was happening and then, and then it didn't happen. And I was devastating. I mean, really devastating because it was like years of my life working on it. I've had lots and lots and lots of setbacks. I feel like I've had more setbacks than I've had wins, honestly. But, you know- but Lauren, I, I would bet if you asked most women, we all do. And yeah. probably the most successful women do. We just don't hear we don't about think it. it. We don't think we do. We think everybody, yeah, it's true. Cause that's the narrative is like, we think everyone just succeeds and they- Like that you just woke up looking fabulous on Morning Joe right. and making it all happen. Although let's be honest, looking good is most of it. But anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, look, I mean, yes, I think that's true. Somebody said to me the other day, like, you know, you can't have success without failure. And I'm like, I know, but can we just skip the failure part? I would really, make life much easier. I really prefer to skip the failure part. So yeah, look, I mean, I think I'm lucky that I have built. So I have some like self-care practices that also help me with my resilience, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've had a meditation practice for 25 years, which has kept me from you know, falling apart. And I, and I give myself like when I have the big setbacks, when things like really fall apart or they fail and I'm just not getting what I want. I feel like I'm just like, you know, I'm always rolling a boulder up a hill and every once in a while the boulder like starts to roll backwards over <laughs> <Right>. me. <laughs> I'm like, find my way to pick it up again. Um, you know, I think that 
like I give myself like a good, I usually give myself like a good, like 24 to 48 hours of like full on moping. I heard somebody say, and it was a debatable whether it's good advice, but I appreciated it, that whether you're celebrating or you're devastating, you get 24 hours to sit 24 hours. Yeah, no, I go like full Haagen-Dazs for like 24 hours. Right. Yammies and Haagen-Dazs. And then, and then I'm done with that. And then I can move on and I go back to it. It, It's, it's like, but that's, you know, hard. I I heard that um, David Plouffe had a poster in his office in the White House that said hard things are hard. So let me ask you about the stories that you're telling, because I have to imagine, you know, I was watching the piece that you did on the refugee crisis in Ukraine. And I was thinking, you know, it's hard enough to do the work itself. Um, but it gets even harder when you're telling stories about people in pain. How yeah. did you approach that process? Um, I'm guessing that your meditation practice probably helped, but um, talk to me a little bit about what it was like to go see there and do that and how it affected you when you came home. Oh, it was so special. I will tell you, I called a bunch of war correspondent friends of mine because I'd never done this before. By the way, I completely like, this was like, just absolutely like, I just talked Morning Joe into letting me do this. <laughs> No one, no one was like, Hey, Lauren, we'd really like you to go to Ukraine and file this piece about women refugees. No, I was invited to go by um, an aid organization called care. Then I convinced morning Joe to let me do this thing. And so it was totally like scrappy. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, so, but I called some more correspondent friends of mine and I was like, what do you do? Like, how do you talk to people that are in crisis? I didn't want to be exploitive, but the thing that, and they all said to me the same thing, which turned out to be exactly right which is that they wanted to tell their stories because they wanted their stories to be known. Mm-hmm. And that was really what I found was that the women that I met, they want, they wanted people to know their stories and they wanted to talk to me and they were grateful that I was going to tell their stories. I still hear from them. I miss them. The, they're just the number. I mean, it's millions of women, obviously that were displaced by the war in the Ukraine and they're all having, you know, they're struggling and trying to figure out how to, take care of their kids and survive in foreign countries. Um, but yeah, it was really, that was a just extraordinarily humbling experience. And I think, you know, as I said, like my driving force, my North star is that I just want to do right. I am blessed that I have an opportunity to have a voice and I take very, very seriously the responsibility that comes with that. And whether that's, you know, getting mainstream media to talk about what's happening for women in poverty or women in COVID or women in the economy or women in politics or women in the Ukraine, you know, that's, that's my North star is I, 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 I'm blessed that I have these opportunities. I worked, I worked for them, but I'm also like unbelievably lucky. And so I take that really seriously. But it's important the way that you're enabling us to hear people's stories and also helping motivate people to go out there and be the change that that you know they want to see and that we need them to be in the world. So I want to circle back to stuff that's coming up with AIT or all in together. Um, I noticed on the website there are some programs coming up. Talk to sure. me about your educational activities, who's eligible for them, how yeah. people can get involved in them. Well, anyone can get involved. Um, we run programs all over the country. In the next few months, we'll be um, focused on Arizona and Florida and Texas um, for lots of good reasons. Um, we have a big Women in Democracy Summit that we're doing in Austin, Texas in uh, September, which we're, we're gonna bring together the heads of 
all of the organizations in the country that are working on advancing women's equality in our democracy and really focus on solutions. And we're kind of taking the fight to Austin. So uh, for all the reasons. And, um, and then we have these wonderful community programs around the country that anyone can come to. Um, they're super inclusive and low key and we're nonpartisan. So like, we're never gonna ask you what you believe or what party you belong to. It's really about coming and learning and building community and learning how to be, a, how to find the tools of power for yourself and for your community. So folks should sign up on our website. We've got lots of stuff going on and um, it's, it's a, and I, you know, we try to really be um, as positive and constructive a political force as we possibly can be at a time so, when there's so much that's destructive. Absolutely. So what would success look like for you um, for the outcome of these workshops that are being planned? Well, I mean, more is more. We want women to do all the things, to do everything they possibly can. And for more women to see themselves as um, having a voice and having the power that they really have. So, you know, all of it to us matters, whether that's running for office or just picking up the phone and calling a local elected official, that to us is success. And, um, you know, on a macro level, look, we're not gonna stop until women have equal power and voice in our democracy. Right now, the United States is, fun fact, 37th in the world for the political power of women. Uh, also, fun fact, Iceland's the best. They keep winning, <laughs> right. Iceland's number one. They keep, they keep winding up in the top spot, but um, we've got work to do in this country. So we're not stopping until we climb those, climb those rankings. So just, I want a, a quick question with just the little bit of time we have left. One of the places where I'm gonna posit um, all the good that you do in the world was seriously nourished was when you went to Barnard. Um, uh, talk to me for a minute. There are all these kids going on college tours over yeah. the summer with their parents. Thoughts on going to an all women's school? Oh, it's amazing. And my daughter, my oldest daughter goes to Wellesley. So we're continuing the, the tradition. And um, yeah, I mean, women's colleges are amazing. Look, I mean, I was, I was raised by a feminist in a feminist house. I went to schools my whole life that were focused on social justice. I was very blessed in that way. Had a lot of activist women around me. Um, my mother worked for Bella Abzug the year that I was born and worked on the ERA and all of those things. So, so I come by it. It's like in the, it's like the family business, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> family business, but um, yeah, no, I think there is something looks so powerful about communities of women that we need. And whether that's ever, whether that's going to a women's college or just showing up for, to collaborate with other women or going to an organization, you know, meeting, going to an organization like ours that gives women a safe space to learn and support each other. We need that. And, we and that's power. We certainly do. And Lauren, we needed to hear this from you. I'm so excited you joined us today and for all the work you're doing for people who want to learn more and get in touch. How can they find you? www.aitogether.org. And they can also follow us on all the socials. And uh, we're, we're a positive place in the social world. So come follow us. Fantastic, Lauren. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my assistant, Kara Pogue, our sound engineers, Chris Tukes and Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week and make sure you register to vote. Because every day there's something to survive. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.